The Spacey Adventures, a bionic booty shorts. Hey everybody, welcome to this bitty 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 powered episode of Super Sci-Fi Party, the only podcast where we talk exclusively about fun science fiction, movies, TV shows, and more. No post-apocalyptic downer sci-fi allowed. My name is Todd Kinsley, and with me as always is my tiki swearing, Dr. Theopolis bearing, skin tight, uniform wearing co-host and brother, Scott Kinsley. How are you doing on this 25th century winter's day, Scott? <laughs> doing well, thanks. I just wanted to say nanu nanu. Shazbut. Today we're going to be talking about a TV series called Buck Rogers in the 25th century, specifically the episode Awakening Part 1 and 2 from 1979. Do you remember 1979, Scott? Uh, vaguely. See, since I wasn't born for 20 years after that, I don't actually remember it at all. But- <laughs> Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Those time travel paradoxes are rough. <laughs> There's something. Anyway, in honor of the fantastic uh, sci-fi series Buck Rogers in the 25th century, we have created our top 10 list of rejected sci-fi show titles from 1979. Number 10, The Boogie Down Biosphere. Boogie, oogie, oogie. <laughs> something like that. Number 9, Mr. Spaceface. Yeah. I don't know what the heck that means. Number eight, The Love Rocket. Ew. Yeah, I don't know if that could be aired on TV. Oh, no. Right. Number seven, Deep Space Disco Detectives. <laughs> Sadly, I'd watch that. Number six, Pinball Planet. Okay, no, I'd watch that. I'd want to go there. Somebody needs to make something called Pinball Planet. Number five, Black Hole Bell Bottoms. <laughs> that sounds scarier than, than Bell Bottoms. Only just slightly. Takes it up one whole level of uh, frightening. <laughs> Number four, The Federation of Funky Force Fields. They all have the same theme song in my head. <laughs> Number three, Groovy Gravity Guys. Strike again. What? <laughs> Strike again. Sounds like a sequel. (laughs) Number two, the Disco Ball Death Ray Incident. Now that sounds like some kind of play that you would see. You know, had I read it beforehand, it would have been the Disco Ball Death Ray Incident. Exactly. And number one on our top ten list of rejected sci-fi show titles from 1979, The Spacey Adventures, a bionic booty shorts. (laughs) Bow-bow-bow. All right, that sounds like another good show, though. I would definitely watch uh, pretty much all of those. Today, however, we're going to talk about an actual sci-fi TV series called Buck Rogers in the 25th century, specifically the episodes Awakening Part 1 and 2, which kicked off the series in 1979. Now, there's a little bit of a story how Buck Rogers got started Story time. Which we will get to in just a minute. But first, I want to tell you about the episode, Awakening, Part 1 and 2. 
Uh, it was written by Glenn A. Larson and Leslie Stevens and was directed by Daniel Haller. I have to say, out of those three people, the only one that I've ever heard of before was Glenn A. Larson. Mm, what'd you hear of him from? Glenn A. Larson was a showrunner, show writer, show creator who created multiple TV shows in the 70s and 80s that were hits, including Magnum P.I., 1980 to 1988, The Fall Guy, 1981 to 1986, and Knight Rider, 1982 to 1986. But these days, he's most often remembered for creating Battlestar Galactica, which ran between 1978 and 1979. Unfortunately for Battlestar fans, that show was way too expensive, so it got canceled. And his 1979 follow-up was Buck Rogers in the 25th Century. Wow. So he pretty much made everything we liked back then. (laughs) He at least made half of it. At least of the hour-long action drama sci-fi things pretty much he was he was the man the fact that he made battlestar and buck rogers just blows my mind plus knight rider come on well magnum pi and and magnum speaking of which if you are not watching the new magnum pi you need to get on it it's (laughs) uh i know it's not sci-fi at least not yet there haven't been any sci-fi episodes but it's great it really is great. It's very good. I was concerned. I was an old school PI, Magnum PI fan. When I saw they were coming out with a new one, I was a bit uh, hesitant, but it definitely won me over. It's worth checking it out. And there's sometimes cameos by the original actors, with the exception, of course, of Tom Selleck, <laughs> who is still ticked off that he didn't get to play Magnum again. Well, doesn't he have a show immediately after Magnum (laughs) P.I. on that network? I believe Blue Bloods might still be running. But I remember reading an article when they were coming out with the new Magnum P.I. that he was uh, upset that he wasn't cast as Magnum. Really? They wanted it to be the the older adventures of Magnum or something. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know that that would have been as good. I like the new Magnum. I miss Tom Selleck at first. But the new guy whose name eludes me grew on me. And uh, if you haven't checked it out, I highly suggest that you go give it a try. It's uh, fun. It's exciting. It's a little bit unpredictable even. Most shows, I can figure out the plot in the first five to six minutes and know exactly how the show is going to end. But Magnum keeps you guessing here and there. So it's really cool. Anyway, back in sci-fi world... Buck Rogers in the 25th century had an interesting cast, to say the least. Uh, This specific episode, Awakening, there was a Buck Rogers TV movie that was actually released theatrically and did really well. So then they took the movie, cut it into two parts, which is Awakening, part one and two, added some new scenes, and then that became the pilot for the Buck Rogers series. Yeah, it's very weird because it reads very much like a pilot for a TV show, but then to hear that it was in the theaters, you're like, ooh, that's, it's interesting. (laughs) Star Wars came out and everybody was desperate to jump on the Star Wars train. So the Star Wars bandwagon, as they say. If you had anything sci-fi, somebody needed, they were going to drag it out because there was money to be made and suddenly... Everybody was crazy for sci-fi. Ah, it was a wonderful time. (laughs) The character of Buck Rogers actually dates back to 1928. He's the creation of author Philip Francis Nolan, 
and he first appeared in the novella Armageddon 2419 AD. In each iteration, William, or sometimes Anthony Rogers, is a modern-day Earthman who, through accidental suspended animation, ends up 500 years in the future. The concept proved a particularly fruitful one, and many imitators sprang up afterwards. The most famous of these is Flash Gordon, who debuted in 1934. Mm. I think we need to take a pact now for Super Sci-Fi Party Podcast. Oh. Anytime that we say Flash Gordon, we immediately follow it with... Ah! <laughs> the people who don't know what we're talking about, check out the 1980s theatrical version of Flash Gordon with the amazing soundtrack by the rock band Queen, and your eyes will be opened. In my opinion, the greatest sci-fi rock soundtrack of all time. Fair enough. And the greatest sci-fi soundtrack of all time, coming in second only to, I believe, Star Wars A New Hope, so... That's all opinion, of course. Radically different styles there, but I I see the point. Yeah, I can agree with that. So Buck Rogers as a concept has been around for a long time. One of the original sci-fi OGs. And apparently he got a series in 1979 on television. Playing Captain William Buck Rogers in 1979 was Gil Gerard. Playing Colonel Wilma Deering was Aaron Gray. And wow, we need to talk about Erin Gray. <laughs> one, it goes without saying that she was one of the uh, original sci-fi mega babes. Yes. And even much later in life, she still was and is a sci-fi mega babe. She also, later in life, a lot of people don't know this, but she started an agency that books talent into fan conventions because she would go to a lot of these comic cons and sci-fi fan conventions and whatnot. And she would book herself, you know, the the convention pays for you to come or they just let you sell your merchandise or they pay you and sell your merchandise, but they provide flights and hotels and there's details that need to be worked out. And she kept doing it for herself. And then a friend asked her, someone in the sci-fi world asked her to do it for him or her. I can't remember exactly what actor it was. And she did, and then on and on. Next thing you know, she has a full-blown business being a booking agent for fan conventions. Cool. So she's going to be calling us up, trying to book us at conventions soon? Absolutely. Sweet. Assuming that, you know, she becomes one of our 300 listeners. Oh, I'm sure she is. Of course. Because she's not sci-fied out by now. No. She's only been doing it since 1979. (laughs) Although, the last thing uh, that I remember seeing her star in was amazing. Um, She was in later seasons of The Guild. If you're not familiar with The Guild, it was what I call an early web series that became extremely popular. And it followed the story of several players of an online RPG similar to Warcraft. And it was comedy. It was great. And she came on actually playing a pseudo version of herself with a different name. I can't remember the name of the character right now, but she was a former sci-fi princess and one of the people in the guild became highly enamored with her. And I think she became his girlfriend for a while. Nice. It was fantastic. So I don't, there's not enough nice things to say about Colonel Wilma Deering, except that uh, she needs to get a different rank because Colonel doesn't make sense. (laughs) This is how you spell the word Colonel. C-O-L-O-N-E-L. Colonel. K-E-R-N-A-L. Come on, English. Colonel. Come on, English. Get it together. 
In Buck Rogers in the 25th century, there was a fun little robot who was pretty much everyone's favorite character from the show. And his body was played by Felix, I believe it's Scylla. And the voice of Tweaky the robot was played by Mel Blanc. If that name sounds familiar to you, it's because he was the man of a thousand voices. And get ready for this, Scott, because I'm going to drop some knowledge on you that's going <laughs> to blow your mind. I'm not ready yet. Okay. Doom, doom, doom. <laughs> oh, copyrighted music. I'm ready doom, now. Doom, doom, no, that don't make sense. Okay. Mel Blanc played the voice of, on Looney Tunes, he played the voice of Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, Elmer Fudd, Tweety Bird, Yosemite Sam, Porky Pig, Sylvester the Cat, Speedy Gonzalez, Tasmanian Devil, and more. Ever hear of any of those? Yeah, the Ann Moore character was my favorite. And more. I still have Ann Moore posters on my wall. <laughs> Actually, out of those, I think Tasmanian Devil was my favorite. But... That's the one. On the Flintstones, he played Barney Rubble, Dino, and more. On Captain K-Man, he played Captain K-Man. Can you do your best Captain K-Man for us? Captain K! Not bad, not bad. I kind of, I feel sad for today's generation because Captain Caveman's kind of become a lost treasure. <laughs> like, I don't know that he's really carried on. I don't know that a lot of uh, really young people necessarily know who Captain Caveman was. Now, interesting you call him a lost treasure because in a job I do elsewhere, I have a lost and found drawer that has a little plastic thing with a Captain Caveman sticker on it. It appeared there maybe six years ago. Well, it's good to know someone's keeping Captain Caveman alive. If you haven't seen Captain Caveman, go check him out. Further going on in Mel Blank's credits, Heathcliff, he played Heathcliff, Spike, and more. <laughs> Man, the, that and more gets in a lot of shows. On the Jetsons, he played Mr. Spacely. On Gilligan's Island, he played Sam the Parrot and Ribbit the Frog. Nice. I don't remember talking to animals at Gilligan's Island, but... No. <laughs> Well, I guess a parrot could talk. But. IMDB doesn't lie. In The Monsters, he played the raven. Nice. Which I also don't remember. I vaguely remember seeing a raven. He might have been near the stairs or something. I was, nice. was going to say he hung out on the stairway. And... I think he might have said nevermore. <laughs> I'm not sure. Uh, and on the Fruit Loops commercials, he played Toucan Sam. So Mel Mel Blank, the man of a thousand voices, played the voice of Tweaky. And then the body of Tweaky, the robot, was Felix Sillop. Yeah, you see, you spun me off in another direction here. I seem to remember on Looney Tunes, Daffy Duck used to have a little spin-off series there that was Duck Dodgers in the 25th and a half century. It's funny because I actually originally had that Duck Dodgers reference in the top 10 list, and then I took it out because I didn't know if people today would know what it was. Well, I'm trying to figure out which one came first, the Buck Rogers TV show or Duck Dodgers on the Looney Tunes? I'm pretty sure it would be Duck Dodgers. A lot of the Looney Tunes credits, like the whole a big chunk of them, start in 1946. All right. Apparently, this was uh, Duck Dodgers came out in 53. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Uh, speaking of robots that were in Buck Rogers in the 25th century, the voice of Dr. Theopolis was Eric Server. And Dr. Theopolis, for those who don't know, kind of looked like a thick wall clock <laughs> with LED eyes and mouth. Actually, yeah. he didn't have a mouth, did he? He had eyes. I guess he had a mouth because it, cause it blinked they when he talked. Blinked, yeah. Because apparently 
in Buck Rogers, computers had started making themselves and decided to form, I believe it's the Council of Computing. Yep, the Computer Council, I think they called it. And they benevolently oversee mankind. (laughs) And they program themselves. No humans are involved anymore. That's right. They create new versions or whatever. And I was like, hmm, this kind of sounds like the start of Terminator, but... Apparently it went right for them. Yeah, apparently it's still working at this time, but you can see later it evolving into a Terminator-type situation. (laughs) Other characters in Buck Rogers in the 25th century are Dr. Elias Hauer, played by Tim O'Connor. And we were watching some original Star Trek The Next Generation episodes, and we happened to see him pop up on Star Trek. Yes. So he's a traitor to Buck Rogers. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, I think he popped up. I don't remember exactly, but somewhere close to 10 years later on TNG. Yeah, I can't remember the episode. Princess Ardala was played by Pamela Hensley. Holy cow. <laughs> Whenever anyone talks about a sex symbol from Buck Rogers, they always talk about Colonel Wilma Deering, but I, I guess they forget about Princess Ardala because she was a bad guy. Maybe that's why. Maybe. Oh, holy cat. Was she rocking a metal bikini long before Princess Leah? Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, that would be. Yeah, all her casual wear was like long dresses and everything. And then anytime there's a formal event, then all of a sudden she's got to pop on a bikini and a cape. You could definitely say this about Buck Rogers in the 25th century. It has not aged well. <laughs> there are uh, definitely some Me Too moments and uh, sexism and... Yep. Even from the robots. Yes, even from the robots. <laughs> or primarily from the robots. It's uh, Well, I wouldn't say that. I'd say primarily from Buck. True. <laughs> it has not aged well per se. If you're a super PC person, there are going to be a few things you don't like in there. It's not constant and it doesn't overpower the series. And they did have things like Wilma Deering was the top person in Earth Defense Force. Yep. She was the colonel. But at the same time, she was dressed in a skin-tight suit and said some wacky things to Buck Rogers here and there. But then again, he was in a skin-tight suit as well. Everyone was, so. Well, that's the only outfit you're allowed to wear in the future. Yeah, that's how you know I could never be on Buck Rogers, because there's no way in heck I'm putting on that skin-tight suit. (laughs) Also starring in Buck Rogers was Kane, played by Henry Silva. And here's my favorite character name of the episode that we watched. Duke Butler played Tiger Man. (laughs) He sounds like a He-Man character, doesn't he? He kind of looked like a He-Man character, too. He really did. Welcome, Tiger Man. And in IMDb, Tiger Man is one word. I mean, that was one impressively large guy. Kind of looked like a wrestler, but when I looked him up, I couldn't find any other listing for him except this episode of Buck Rogers. Nope, I don't know where they dug him up, but they buried him back there when they were done with him. Yep, imagine a wrestler or a strong man at a circus. That's He looked like an old-time carny strong man. Yeah, he probably like was. 1928, he's like, I am Tiger Man. <laughs> but, you know, this was supposed to be 500 years in the future, so try to figure that one out. So as we mentioned, Buck Rogers premiered in 1979, What else was happening, Scott, in 1979 that competed with Buck Rogers? Well, some shows that were directly competing with Buck Rogers. Laverne and Shirley, uh, backed up by Benson. And then in the winter, they replaced Laverne and Shirley with Mork and Mindy 
on another channel, another sci-fi fiction great, uh, The Waltons. And throughout the week, if you watch through onto a Sunday, you could find Galactica 1980. Ooh, <laughs> the horrible, horrible sequel to Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> yep, it was it was something. It was like when they brought in those cousins on the Dukes of Hazard and pretended they were just going to replace the other two. But they had some stiff competition television-wise, though. Yeah, there were some. I mean, Laverne and Shirley yeah. and uh, Walton's were both very popular. He's, I think Walton's is used to be one of the most popular. I think it did. Well, today we're looking at Buck Rogers Awakenings, part one and two. And since it kicks off the series, it starts how you think it would start. William Buck Rogers is on a solo space mission in the year 1987, which at the time was eight years in the future. You know, they didn't really give themselves a lot of room, did they? No. They're they're like, this show, no way this show is going to be popular. So we'll just set it uh, eight years in the future when it starts and no one will care. But uh, Buck Rogers is on a solo space shuttle mission in 1987. I still think it's weird that someone would send up a space shuttle with one person in it. Yeah. Can you imagine that? What'd they do with all the extra roof? Yeah, that, that's where the stuff goes. Anyway, Buck is on a solo space shuttle mission in 1987 when an ice meteor storm, I don't know if that's a real thing, shuts down his life support and leaves him frozen for 504 years. Ooh. Wouldn't your life support have to keep going to keep you alive for 500 years, or just everything slows down so much because of being frozen? That No, there would definitely have to be some minimal life support. You might not be using up quite as much oxygen, but yeah, I don't know. So I bet the first thing he did after he was discovered was take the world's longest pee. <laughs> no. Perhaps. We don't know. Not exactly covered. But in the year 2491, Buck is finally found by the alien flagship Draconia, which is headed to Earth on a diplomatic mission. It was a pretty standard discovered the guy from the past kind of story, Rip Van Winkle, whatever. I don't know if there's other examples we could think of, but it's a man out of time, kind of quantum leap. Yeah. Man out of time stories are not unusual in sci-fi, Back to the Future. Demolition Man. Demolition Man. There's a lot of them. In this one, it is somewhat unusual because Buck is actually found by the villains. And we know they're the villains by the music that precedes every scene they're in. (laughs) That's right. They are clearly the villains. As we said, the flagship Draconia, which is funny because aren't they called Draconians? (laughs) Yes, they are. So it's going to be, it would be like the flagship human from the humans. Anyway, the flagship Draconia, which is headed to Earth on a diplomatic mission, or so they say. (laughs) On board, Buck beats the sexy, sexy, sexy Princess Ardala, and the Draconians repair Buck's shuttle, which is very nice of them. Yeah. But they plant a homing beacon on his ship to help them learn how to get through Earth's defense shield. Well, I guess they weren't so nice after all. Ooh, apparently not. Upon arriving near Earth... Buck is greeted, quote-unquote, by Earth starfighters led by Colonel Wilma Deering. She orders Buck to follow them to New Chicago. And they are incredibly unfriendly. <laughs> and apparently they you don't have to study the history of Earth to be uh, in the Earth Defense Force or to be a colonel because they seem to have no idea. Well, to be fair, it is a couple hundred years later. Yeah, but if I saw... 
a medieval trebuchet rolling down the street, I would know what it was. True. Might be a little unexpected, but you would at least know what it is. And the fact that he's speaking English with, uh, he's from Chicago with a Chicago accent. I don't know. It just seems weird that they have no idea that uh, he might be from Earth in the past, but they don't seem to have any idea. And they order Buck to follow them through the defense shield and to the city of New Chicago, which is apparently now the main city on Earth. It's the capital of Earth. Nice. What I like is that, you know, they have no idea who he is. They think he's a threat. So they're like, all right, let's bring him straight to the head headquarters there. Let's take him through the defense shield instead of interviewing him outside of the defense shield. Yeah. They, yep. They take him straight to meet their leader. And Buck meets Dr. Elias, whose position is unclear in the world government, who tells Buck that he is now in the 25th century and everyone he knew was killed centuries ago in a nuclear holocaust. Dude, that sucks. It's amazing how little emotional response there is in this to being told that everyone you know and love died 500 years ago. Yeah. Like some of us might consider that to be bad news, whereas Buck just kind of makes a joke. and Yeah, especially considering he was joking about it. He goes, oh, it seems like I was just here two weeks ago. Yeah, exactly. No, no emotional response to being told your entire world is dead and everything and everyone you ever do is gone. Your pets, your family... Your girlfriends, whoever it is, they're gone. Parents, everyone is gone. And he's just like, kind of like, oh, well, let me get a one-liner in. Cha-cheer. All right. <laughs> Anyhow, the authorities on Earth find the tracking device on Buck's ship and immediately convict him of espionage and sentence him to death. Seems fair. Okay, maybe not exactly immediately, but it seems like it happens really quickly. Uh, in showtime, it was within five minutes of finding it. Uh, they discover that he, uh, you know, I... I think they checked his biology and found out that he really was from 500 years ago and then decided he was a spy. That's the way I remember it going down. Well, yeah. Because you know, when you're 500 years old, you still have a career as a spy. <laughs> After sentencing him to death, Buck tells Colonel Deering that the Draconians are not actually on an unarmed, peaceful mission, but in fact are heavily armed and plan to attack Earth. I don't exactly know how he knows that. Did he see something when he was on their ship the first time? It seems like somewhere in there he asks to see his shuttle and then he sees laser scorch marks on the hall and goes, hey, I haven't been in a fight before this, so they must have shot at me. Yeah, I think that's it. I think that's But, what, but you're what right. Happens. That is not an indication that they have a massive armed force ready to go. Somehow he knows that they do and he convinces Colonel Deering to take him to fly out to the draconian ship to find evidence to support his claims. Because that's what you do with death row espionage convicted spies is you take them out on missions to spy on your your new allies. Yeah, she, she jumps right on board of that bandwagon really quick. She's like, heck yeah, let's go. Which is funny considering she pretty much hates Buck at this point. Yeah. I don't know why. <laughs> but anyhow, he convinces her to take him and some starfighters out to the Draconian ship. So they lead a squadron out there. And during their visit, the Draconians deny having ever met Buck previously. And then the ship is mysteriously attacked by quote-unquote pirates, which are really Draconian fighters in disguise. So that was their big plan, was to keep their ships disguised as just interstellar space pirates. So they could surprise the Earth with their force once once they're let through the defense shield and take out the Earth. Um, for some reason that's never truly explained, I don't believe, 
the flight computers aboard the starfighters that are supposed to do the dogfighting for them aren't really doing anything. Oh no, they're they're horrible. So they pretty much pick off the entire squadron except Buck and Wilma. Um, and Buck decides to turn off his computer and uses his 20th century fighting uh, skills. Well, you know, those dog fights you used to have in the space shuttle. <laughs> in 1987. Yeah, of course. So he uh, he has his excellent dogfighting skills and manages to save Colonel Deering's life. And then for some reason, they just leave the Draconian ship. <laughs> they never show him going back or talking about the pirates or landing again. Because they yep. took off suddenly mid-mission to go take care of these pirates. And then they just leave. I don't know why. <laughs> yep, they were supposed to be defending the Draconian ship. And then, like you said, they're, they're just gone. They're like, all right, head head back to Earth now. Okay, we're heading back to Earth. We're not uh, going to tell them anything. We're not going to say, all right, you're good. No, they're, they're just like, bye. <laughs> so once they return to Earth... And we're skipping a little bit here because there's that whole thing where Buck leaves New Chicago to go out into the wasteland of the Holocaust and gets attacked by mutants and all kinds of crazy things, other things that they would never let him do. But uh, once they return to Earth from the Draconian ship, there is a party celebrating the treaty between the Draconians and Earth. And wow, is it a party. (laughs) They're basically doing some kind of classical dancing that involves crystal balls. Yes, it was awesome. I mean, they, they get ready for this dance thing. And to me, the, the opening scene of it is the costumes are so colorful and everything. It's almost like they're going to start a Bollywood dance number. And it has fun, futuristic music. Seems kind of like uh, old school English formal dance and seems to involve the metallic spheres you were talking about. And there's a, there's a guy crazy. who's at some kind of panel with, all, you know, it's the, the exact... It's the kind of quote-unquote futuristic thing you always saw in the 70s and 80s where it's a whole bunch of square lights all over a black panel. He's basically looks like a DJ, but he's actually playing it, though. So he's doing something with his hands. If you look closely enough, he's not even actually touching it, but... Shh, don't ruin the illusion. And Buck comes up to him and tries to get him to play something more 20th century-ish. Is that a word? (laughs) And the guy botches it once, and then he goes, no, like this, and he claps... And then suddenly the guy could just lay down funky bass rhythms from 1979 or an approximation thereof. And they start getting on the old uh, 1979 dance train. Oh, yeah. To me, it kind of sounded like they mixed um, their, their idea of futuristic with disco and jazz. Kind of, yeah. A little more boogie in it than that, but yeah. It's strange, and it's one of those things where you keep expecting the big choreographed dance number to break out, yes. or, or at least for everyone else to start dancing, but everyone stops and stares at Buck, and then Buck convinces the Draconian Princess to dance with him in her sequin bikini, whatever she's wearing this week. <laughs> and everyone just kind of stands around and watches two people dance. Seems fair. I mean, he's doing some weird tribal dance from hundreds of years ago. So This whole show has been terribly unrealistic and crazy. <laughs> and then where you're expecting it, where all shows go unrealistic and everyone just naturally knows the choreographed dance number together. They don't do it. They pull back and everyone just stands there like it more realistic than any of the yeah. other shows. And I'm like, uh, why did you choose this moment? Because we're all about fun here on Super Sci-Fi Party, so it would have been more fun to have everyone start dancing in the ancient style, but apparently they were just going to stand there and do the creeper stare at Buck and uh, (laughs) Bikini Lady. 
But what's really interesting is Buck's kind of doing the, the the guy shuffle, or you're just kind of back and forth, swaying more exactly. or less. Exactly. Then the princess, of course, she knows how to get down and dance from... He's doing a wiggly worm kind of thing. <laughs> I don't know. It's it's fun, but it could have been more fun. We wanted I wanted the big choreograph number. Oh, yeah. Or at least everybody to try the old school dancing just to see all the people in the crazy costumes jumping around. But anyway, uh, something really weird happens at the party. Colonel Deering comes up and confesses having confusing feelings for Buck and offers to take him back to her place. <laughs> this, I have to say, comes completely out of nowhere. There is no build up to this. There is, I mean, Buck tries to flirt with her a little bit here and there, but she shuts him down hard <laughs> and she does not like him. And she yells at him and... Thinks he's a spy. Yeah, there is zero attraction between them that's ever indicated on screen at any time before that. It comes out of nowhere. I thought she was joking at first. Yeah. I thought she was going to just say, aha, I gotcha. I'm playing, you know, whatever, messing with you. But it was apparently a real part of the show. Well, maybe she got jealous after he was out there dancing with the princess. I guess, but there's no indication that they even like each other. In it. And it's not one of those no. taming of the true kind of I hate you, but I love you kind of things. It's just straight up. She just doesn't disinterested and doesn't like him. Like, yeah, there was, I don't know. To me, it just completely came out of left field. But she confesses her feelings to Buck and offers to take him back to her place. And it's very clear that it's an offer for sex. Ah, the future. And Buck refuses. Because he's using the party to start seducing Draconian Princess Ardala so he can return with her to the Draconian ship and try to find evidence of his innocence. So he's like, uh, no time for that now. I'm scamming the princess. Although he doesn't tell her that. That's true. He could have told her, but... He should have told her. Said that I'm trying to get proof. Although maybe he wasn't allowed to leave again since he's technically on death row. True. And you know, you, you let death row inmates go to giant state parties and mingle with the leaders of the country and the planet. And well, yeah. Foreign dignitaries with whom you're forming new alliances. You're like, hey, let's bring the guy from death row. <laughs> Makes perfect sense. We'll dress him up in a dress uniform from our military and let him decide the dance numbers. And Yeah, I don't, I don't get it, but uh, I know we're kind of making a lot of fun of Buck Rogers. But really, the series is funny. If you can get over some of the stuff that hasn't aged really well, it's, and it's not that bad. It, well, some of it's a little bit, <laughs> but it's actually a fun series. It's fun sci-fi, uh, especially, and some of the fun is laughing at how badly some of it's aged, some of the costumes and hairstyles and music. Oh, definitely. Definitely. And this scene is kind of the top of the mountain for things that haven't aged well. <laughs> Between the, the costumes and the music, the dance moves and the, the lingo. It's fun and funny, but it does kind of take you out of the sci-fi for a bit. Anyway, Buck is trying to seduce the princess, and it's working, so he meets her at her ship and flies back with her to the Draconian base ship. Once on the ship, he drugs Princess Ardala, so she passes out, and then he proceeds to sabotage the Draconian fighters so that they will fail in their attempt to conquer Earth. Now, it's nice. I mean, Buck Rogers, as a hero figure, is certainly super heroic. Yeah. Like, when he's in a fight, he takes out all the people himself. If he's in a ship and battle breaks out, he takes out all the other ships himself. If there's a plot to destroy Earth, he flies out to the ship and takes out their whole fleet himself. <laughs> Come on, that's what heroes do. 
somehow, I can't remember exactly how, but the Earth Defense Force decides to fly out. I don't remember if they're flying out to find Buck or uh, if they suddenly decide he's innocent. Tweaky and Dr. Theopolis followed Buck because they oh, were going right. to expose him for the dastardly spy he is and stop his plot. That's right. They're on the ship and they call the Earth Defense Force who sends out squadron. Um, but when they get there, all the ships that try to leave the launch bay suddenly explode because Buck put bombs in them all individually by himself. And he destroys the entire fleet by himself. <laughs> yes, he does. The squadron and Colonel Deering don't even get a shot off. So once again, he saved the day completely alone. Well, all right, Colonel Deering and the uh, squad do finish off the main ship. They're like, all right, all the fighters are gone. Let's take this thing out. Well, that's true. I'm just merciless. They're just like, all right, we are destroying this thing no matter what the situation is. They hit the giant slow mothership after their entire fleet is destroyed by Buck (laughs) by himself. Yes. I don't know. It's kind of crazy. And uh, spoiler, but... um, the Earth Defense Forces a weed and Buck and Tweaky and Dr. Theopolis, who I think they later just call Theo, all escape and make their way back to Earth. And then back on Earth, there's a weird scene where apparently they've decided Buck Rogers is not a spy since he saved, you know, took out the entire enemy fleet by himself. <laughs> and saved yeah. the entire planet. So uh, they give him a small room at the Earth base station. I don't know. New Chicago. Yeah, somewhere in New Chicago. And he's decorating it <laughs> to look more like the 20th century, I guess. It, it has some like off plastic office plants, or maybe they're real. No, I think they're real plants. And what looks like a, a French bistro table with a little plaid tablecloth on it. It's, it's, it's weird. It's weird and terrible. Um, and they kind of make jokes about it. Um, and then they ask him to join Earth's Defense Force, and Buck says, of course I will. I will be the new general of your armies and defend <laughs> Earth forever, and we will have many adventures to keep the series going, and it's going to be fun and awesome, and oh, uh, wait, no, that, that doesn't happen at all. In fact, uh, he turns them down because he doesn't want to get attached to anyone in the new century because he still thinks he might be able to get back to his, get back to the 20th century and you're like, uh, this is weird. This is supposed to start the series yeah. of adventures together in the new in the 25th century. It's literally in the title, Buck Rogers in the 25th century. So we know he's staying. And then because he said no, just to just to make it seem plausible that something cool might still happen, uh, the doctor says, "Oh well, I bet we'll still talk you into coming on some adventures anyway, even though you're not officially part of us." Something along those lines. I was like, really. <laughs> That's, that's how it's going to end. Apparently, he's going to be unofficially on all the missions that happened in all the episodes after this. See, now, technically, he is still in the 25th century, so the title works. That's true. He does stay. And there is, they kind of do the split thing where it is, there's a weekly new adventure, weekly new bad guy, and then the overarching enemy, at least for season one, are the Draconians. Oh, I forgot to mention when he is first introduced to the Draconians, when he's coming out of his, whatever his, uh, Rip Van Winkle state, what do they call that? Hibernation. Yeah. He's a sustained hibernation state and they're introducing themselves. Oh, the, the one general, the, we're the big bad Draconians. And they actually say the Draconians have conquered three fourths of the universe. (laughs) 
not the solar system, not the quadrant, not the galaxy, three-fourths of the universe have been conquered by the Jacodians. Yeah, if they've got that much, you might as well just cave in, I think. That's like, a, like, why did they even have to get through Earth's shield? They could have just blown up the whole solar system if they owned. The radius of the observable universe is estimated to be <laughs> about 46.5 billion light years, and its diameter is about 28.5 gigaparsecs, whatever those are. Wow, that sounds like a lot. That sounds incredibly large. Three quarters of the known universe. Which is very impressive when they think that the universe is still expanding. So. Exactly. What we were speaking of the other night. I'm like, well, how did they keep up their three quarters? They just keep conquering every 10 minutes. Oh, we conquered another 10 light years. Maybe that's why it's only three quarters. And then, they, dang it. and then they send one ship to conquer Earth and they have to disguise it because they're so afraid of the Earth. It just doesn't make sense. <laughs> Three quarters of the known universe. I will say, uh, the beginning of the show, speaking of the beginning, kicked off with an excellent theme song composed by Stu Phillips. This came only a year after his awesome theme to Battlestar Galactica. Nice. I can't say enough nice things about Battlestar. Battlestar did, came really close to doing what it was supposed to do, which was be as good as Star Wars music, which is really saying something um, Battlestar is extremely good. Uh, Buck Rogers is pretty good. Stu Phillips also composed the theme to The Fall Guy. <laughs> nice. And Knight Rider. Jeez. Now let's think about what kind of composer that makes him if he can come up with Battlestar, Knight Rider, and The Fall Guy. Completely different genres for all three of them. Like, I'll say Fall Guy, if no one knows, is kind of a country western tune. Oh, I'm not one to kiss and tell, but I've been seen with fair. That's the one. And then Night Rider, which has been sampled by many rappers and other people. True. Kind of like early, early, early techno. Fantastic. And Battlestar, of course, is big orchestral. I would say Buck Rogers is like a big orchestral score, but then it has a little bit of uh, late 70s, early 80s vibe to it <laughs> layered over top. And then, of course, there's Scott's favorite thing about Buck Rogers, which is oh. the song that plays at the end of every episode. Oh, gosh. He loves it so much. I mean, it starts, it's very slow and plotting, and oh, then this guy comes in right. and... He sounds to me like he can barely sing what he's trying to sing, but you, you know he can because like barely five seconds later he kicks in and he's got a good voice, but those first few notes, man, are just, oh, we We figured it out. Uh, it took me actually two episodes before I figured out that the melody to the thing he's singing at the end is actually the horn line, the big main melody line from the theme song to Buck Rogers, but that was written for horns. So the big leaps, the big intervals that he's singing were much easier to play on a horn than they are with the human voice. And this guy, he's not a super singer even when he when he does finally get to the better part of the song, but he definitely botches those those intervals and it's interesting. It's that's stretching his abilities. It's, that's what it was. It's <laughs> interesting. But that's how they end. It kind of reminds me a little bit of um, the opening theme to Star Trek Enterprise. <laughs> Except much worse. It was like the 70s version of the Star Trek Enterprise theme. Oh, man, the Enterprise theme was very slow and drawn out at first. And then 
every season they kind of picked it up a little bit. By the end, it sounded like they hit like the bossa nova button on a on old your, organ on your grandma's for the organ. drums. It's just. Oh. But I'll give it up to uh, fabulous composer Stu Phillips, the late great. He really came up with some things that have lasted some music yeah. that has maintained. I mean, you, you can listen to the Night Rider theme right now, and I say it's still as cool as it was in the mid '80s. Oh, there are like hundreds of YouTubers doing covers with whatever instrument they can find for that. Yep, and I like it, it live. I believe there's been multiple famous rappers who have also sampled Night Rider in their yeah. songs. It's just fantastic. So two thumbs up to Stu Phillips. Speaking of the audio experience of Buck Rogers, another thing I noticed almost immediately, having been a very large Battlestar Galactica fan, is that many, many, many of the sound effects from Battlestar Galactica are reused in Buck Rogers. Yep, Even the launch tube from Battlestar is reused in Buck Rogers, although they did change the colors of the lights they go zipping past. Well, that's when I tried to look it up to see if somebody actually admitted that the sound effects were reused. It turns out that a lot of the sets and special effects and things were were just straight up reused and or lifted from Battlestar Galactica. They were both owned by the same network. They were both run by Larson, Glennie Larson. And there were actually things that had been created for Battlestar that didn't make it into Battlestar before it was canceled for being Mm -hmm. too expensive. And then they just decided to put them into Buck Rogers. So they're like, we already have it, so let's put it there. Exactly. So nice. some some of the scenes look really, really similar. And I was noticing when when the starships were actually flying, some of the flight patterns looked exactly like flight patterns from the colonial ships from Battlestar. I was waiting for the scene where they where it goes to the upper left and blows up. <laughs> like every Battlestar fight scene, but didn't get to notice that. But the sound effects you'll notice right away, the sounds of the lasers, the explosions, everything, you're like, wow. If you're a fan of Battlestar, you'll instantly recognize them. Definitely. And I enjoyed it. I, it didn't bother me. It kind of made made it seem like there was some kind of continuation. Yeah. All right. So that was Buck Rogers in the 25th Century Awakening, part one and two. <laughs> Best applause in the world. So do you have anything else to say about Buck Rogers in the 25th Century? As we always say, because we tend to review shows that we like, it's definitely worth trying to find and check out. I know it's occasionally on Amazon Prime, Prime Video, that is. And as of twenty early 2021, you can currently find it on the NBC app on Apple TV. Yep, I assume probably NBC.com as well. We have not checked Peacock. Or did you check Peacock? I did check Peacock first. It was not there. It was actually on the NBC.com app. I'm assuming they're going to move all of the things from NBC, the NBC app over to Peacock. But right now, you actually have to watch it on the NBC app and it has commercials. Yay. Ah, <laughs> uh, commercials. Well, we hope you had a fun time hanging out with us today on Super Sci-Fi Party. If you'd like to tell us what you think about Buck Rogers in the 25th century, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or send us an email at party at super sci-fi party.com. That's party at super sci-fi party.com. We'd be more than happy to hear from you. Remember, you can also learn more about the show by visiting our website, super sci-fi party.com. And if you enjoy Super Sci-Fi Party, please pass it along to your awesome sci-fi loving friends and family. 
We need your help to spread the word about fun science fiction. You know, I was thinking about it. We said no post-apocalyptic sci-fi. Uh-oh. Buck Rogers is post-apocalyptic sci-fi. Oh, no. All right, scrap the whole episode. <laughs> yep, we're going to erase it. But I think it's fun post-apocalyptic sci-fi. Well, it's not like currently apocalyptic, and it's like after the the... The cleanup, more or less. Well, I guess not in this case, but a couple hundred years post-apocalyptic. It's yes. bright. It's bright and shiny. Nineteen seventy-nine, fun, happy post-apocalyptic sci-fi. True. There, we gave ourselves an exemption. <laughs> anyway, we need your help to spread the word about Super Sci-Fi Party Podcast because without you, there's no point in doing them. We'd like to give a shout out to our friend Mickey, who's been sharing our Facebook post. Thanks to you, Mickey. You rock. We'd also like to give a shout out to a podcast by the other brother. You know, Scott and I, who do Super Sci-Fi Party, are brothers. And we have another brother named Brian, who does a podcast called Crime in Music, all about musicians and their misadventures into crime. So check that out, Crime in Music. And until next time, for SuperSciFiParty.com, I'm Todd Kinsley. I'm Scott Kinsley. And in the immortal words of Doc Brown from Back to the Future, the future is what you make it, so make it a good one. Adios. See ya. Bitty, 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 bitty.